Well, good morning once again. Uh, Let's take time uh, before we open the word to the Sermon on the Mount uh, to seek the Lord and, and approach his throne once more. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, you have devoted so much space in your word to the idea of two voices, the, uh, the voice of wisdom versus the voice of foolishness. And Lord, you desire that we would go through this life seeking the voice of wisdom, trying to discern it and listening to it. There are so many voices that clamor for our attention in this world. And Lord God, the Sermon on the Mount is the voice of wisdom incarnate, the voice of God incarnate, laying out for us the path to human flourishing, human freedom. And so I pray over these coming weeks that we as a congregation would listen well to the voice of Jesus as he speaks to us in this sermon, and not only listen but seek, take risks even to apply this word in our lives with the help of your Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, that we would be doers of the word that Jesus speaks here. So give us alertness, I pray. Give us insight and wisdom and courage. Lord, unsettle us if we are too settled. Disturb the comfortable and comfort the disturbed, I pray. Father, assist me to proclaim over these coming weeks as I recognize myself, my lack as I listen to Jesus. Help us all, I pray, Jesus. Come in our midst and grant us the power to obey what you have commanded. I pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, this morning is the beginning of a series of sermons on the Sermon on the Mount, which is found in Matthew chapters 5 through 7 in your Bible. Uh, If you have a pew Bible, it's pages 936 to 940. And this series of sermons will take us into next May. I'm serious. Our plan with God's help, is to tread slowly and thoughtfully through this magnificent yet troubling section of Scripture. Why troubling? Well, because as Scott McKnight has put it, the contrast between Jesus' vision in the Sermon on the Mount and our life bothers Many of us. Again, McKnight says, and I resonate with his words, the contrast between Jesus' vision in the Sermon on the Mount and our life bothers many of us. Friends, when you and I set about to read the Sermon on the Mount in a serious and a sober way, what we will find is that a good number of the demands, and that's not too strong a word, a good number of the demands and standards that Jesus voices here are alarming in their rigor and they are disquieting 
in their difficulty. While the words that Jesus speaks in the Sermon on the Mount are certainly attractive and certainly stirring, exquisite even in their beauty, the demands that he puts on us here also seem to verge on the impossible. I think Dale Allison has summed this up very well in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. In the quote I'm about to read you, Allison is reviewing some of the content of the Sermon on the Mount, and he asks some very provocative questions about that content. He says, quote, The words of the Sermon on the Mount may please, but who can live them? Is it realistic to ask people to love their enemies? Would not obedience to this imperative be a recipe for the prosperity of evil? And would it not be more prudent, Allison asks, to have thieves arrested rather than to give them one's cloak if they have taken one's coat? How can good people stand by while evil people do what they will? What is the harm in taking an oath in the courtroom? Should one stay married to an abusive husband just because he is not known to have committed adultery? Can Jesus really have been so obtuse, Allison asks, as to imagine that he could banish the sexual impulse with an imperative? Close quote. Well, Dale Allison goes on in his commentary, of course, to give us help with those sorts of questions concerning the Sermon on the Mount, but his point is well taken. Many of the things that Jesus asks of us in the Sermon on the Mount seem to verge on the unattainable. If we're going to read the Sermon on the Mount slowly and thoughtfully and soberly, it will actually create problems for us. As Jonathan Pennington has noted, Pennington says, there is the simple problem of the sermon's high demands and the apparent impossibility of doing what it says fully and consistently. Now, friends, to lay my cards out on the table here, as far as how I personally interpret the Sermon on the Mount, I am not one who signs on with what Dale Allison calls the impossible ideal view. The impossible ideal view of the Sermon on the Mount is a view that is normally associated with Lutheranism, but it's been very influential amongst Christians of all stripes. And over the years, I've talked to several people who subscribe to this view. The impossible ideal view points out that because the ideals and standards that Jesus sets in the Sermon on the Mount are so incredibly high, no one can, in fact, obey them because of the reality of sin. 
This view is quick to point out that there's no one around who can fully obey all the precepts and exhortations and the law that Jesus lays down in his sermon. So then what is the actual purpose of the Sermon on the Mount according to the impossible ideal view? The purpose, it is said, is to drive us in our despair of being unable to obey the sermon, to drive us to Christ and the grace we find in Christ. So that according to this view, listen, the Sermon on the Mount is really nothing more than preparation for us to receive the gospel. The Sermon on the Mount is a tool to bring us to faith in Christ Jesus. As I said, I don't fully sign on with that interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount. I think that interpretation is certainly right to place an emphasis on grace. There is no doubt whatsoever that you and I will need the grace that is given by God the Spirit and we will need the enablement of the Spirit if we are to obey what Jesus asks of us in his sermon, but to simply write the Sermon on the Mount off as being little more than a tool whose sole purpose is to drive us to Christ, as the impossible ideal view does, well, this amounts to being, I think, an evasion of the content of the Sermon on the Mount. Again, I quote Dale Allison who says this, The sermon itself nowhere hints that believers are not really expected to live it. In fact, friends, what are the last words and therefore very important words that Jesus speaks in the Sermon on the Mount? In Matthew 7... Verses 24 to 27, Jesus closes his entire sermon, all the teaching he has just given in the Sermon on the Mount, by saying this. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine, the words I've just preached in the Sermon on the Mount, and does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. We could also point out that in the Great Commission, Jesus commands us to observe all that he taught. Would that not include the Sermon on the Mount? Clearly, Jesus expects us to do the words of the Sermon on the Mount, the teachings there. He intended what he said in the Sermon on the Mount to, listen, to encroach on us however uncomfortable that may be, to, to push us to both decide on him and provoke us 
toward kingdom action. So friends, as thorny and as difficult and as counterintuitive and as sandpapery as Jesus is in the Sermon on the Mount, and he is sandpapery at times. I had a church history professor tell me once, we love the Jesus that is flannel sheets, but sometimes he's sandpaper. As sandpaper as he is here, sandpapery if that's a word, I want to counsel you that I don't think it's wise for us to simply evade his teaching here by chalking it all up to being nothing more than a tool whose only purpose was to prepare us for the gospel. Over these coming months that we will spend in the sermon, I think that you and I need to reckon together with Jesus. Are you with me? To grapple with the fact that he does seem to have an expectation that in our lives we will do the words and the ethic that he is declaring in his sermon. Yes, we absolutely need the grace and the assistance of the Holy Spirit to do this. And yes, the righteousness that Jesus outlines in his sermon cannot and will not be completely fulfilled in us in this time prior to his second coming. None of us are going to be flawless in fulfilling the demands on the Sermon on the Mount, but let's not use that as an excuse to neglect what Jesus says here or to evade it. I'm inviting you to come along and struggle with me, and I will be struggling too, to struggle with me through the Sermon on the Mount and let the Lord Jesus have his way with us. Are you with me? Amen. But why do that? Why, if what Jesus lays down here often appears so out of reach and next to impossible, why bother listening intently and seeking to obey it? Well, I want to give you two reasons why we should seek to listen intently to Jesus and seek to obey his teachings in his sermon. The first reason has to do with and I want you to listen carefully, it has to do with the monumental importance for your life of what Jesus is driving at in the Sermon on the Mount. And the second reason why we should listen intently to the Sermon on the Mount and seek to obey the Jesus who speaks it has to do with Jesus himself with the nature of the person who preached the Sermon on the Mount. So let's go through these. Reason one why we should take the time to listen soberly and prayerfully to the Sermon on the Mount, seeking to act out the instruction of Jesus here, we should do that because, in the words of Jonathan Pennington, the Sermon on the Mount is Christianity's answer to the greatest metaphysical question that humanity has always faced. How can we experience true human flourishing? What is happiness, blessedness, shalom? And how does one obtain and sustain it? Yes. 
It's these things that Jesus is putting his finger on in the Sermon on the Mount. Do you desire in your life deep blessedness? Do you desire in your life abiding shalom, wholeness, peace? Well, then you and I should listen intently to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and seek with the Spirit's help to act out the sermon and to obey it because the Sermon on the Mount gives us, friends, the way to shalom. It gives us the pathway to wholeness, to true human flourishing, something we all seek. We said last Sunday, this is what we all desire. Secondly, and here I want to camp out for a moment or two, the second reason why it's good for us to take these months to listen intently to the Sermon on the Mount and seek with the Spirit's help to live it out is simply because of the authority and the integrity of the one who preached it. Because of the authority and the integrity of the one who preached it. You know, something remarkable happens in the Sermon on the Mount that puts the authority of Jesus Christ on full display. And in what follows, I'm borrowing from Oscar Scarsone's excellent book, In the Shadow of the Temple, Jewish Influences on Early Christianity. In his book, Scarsone points out that within the Israel of Jesus' day, Jewish rabbis were a very respected group that had some authority about them in matters of religion. But when you read the writings of the rabbis, what you find is that for their authority on religious matters, they rely largely on tradition. They rely on the previous sayings of writings of earlier rabbis. And so a rabbi will write something like this. He will say, I received a tradition from Rabbi A who in turn received it from Rabbi B. And they will go on to then discuss the tradition in question. Well, higher up on the scale from the rabbi was the prophet. The prophet of God would speak a little more directly from God himself. The prophet would begin his oracle, and we've read this in scripture, with the words, thus says who? The Lord. And then the prophet would launch into what God was saying. But the prophet spoke in God's name, didn't he? Never in his own name. The prophet still knew that at the end of the day, he was a representative of God. Scarsone's words go like this. He says, quote, the prophet wants to restore or strengthen the people's relationship with God, not their relationship with the prophet. His own person is not important. He does not have God's word in himself. It comes to him. Sometimes he has to wait for it. Well, friends, what we find with Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is something rather shocking. And that is 
that Jesus speaks neither like your typical rabbi nor like your typical prophet. No, instead, Jesus speaks God's law in his own name. In his own name. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus speaking in his own name. In the sermon, we never hear Jesus say, like the typical rabbi says, I got this tradition from Rabbi A, who got it from Rabbi B. Neither do we hear Jesus say, like a typical prophet, thus says the Lord, before he utters a teaching. Rather, Jesus says in places like Matthew 5.22, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Or Matthew 5.27, I say to you, it's not thus says the Lord, it's not I got this from Rabbi, it's I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Or Matthew 5.32, I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. Or Matthew 5.38, I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. I say to you. Now imagine how strange and how alarming those words would be to Jewish ears in Jesus' day as they stood around around him listening to him on that mountain. I think the shock is well summed up by the Swedish Jewish rabbi Marcus Arenpreis, who Scarsone quotes in his book. Rabbi Arenpreis says that in the Sermon on the Mount, quote, Jesus' voice had an alien sound, an alien sound that Jewish ears had never heard before. For Judaism, only the revealed teaching of God was important, not the teacher's personal I. Moses and the prophets were human beings encumbered with shortcomings. Hillel and his successors sat on the seat of Moses. Every leading scholar is a link in an unbroken chain of traditions that stretched from Moses to our own time. And then Arenpreis says this, Jesus seemingly breaks this chain and begins a new one. A man arose in Israel who cried, I say to you, Yes, indeed. To quote Mark 1.22, Jesus taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. The scribes were the highest authorities in the land on Judaism. And Mark says, Jesus taught as one who had authority and not like the scribes. This is why we would do well to listen to Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount and seek to obey his teaching. When Jesus Christ taught, it was as if God himself was speaking in the first person. (laughs) 
which is precisely what is happening with Jesus. When Jesus speaks, it's God's voice that you are hearing. Hebrews 1-2, in these last days, God has spoken to us, how? By his Son. The Jesus who speaks the Sermon on the Mount to us has about him the very authority of God. The Jesus who speaks the Sermon on the Mount is the same Jesus who declared his authority on earth to forgive sins. In Luke 5.24, the Jesus who speaks the Sermon on the Mount to us is the same Jesus who would declare that all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him, Matthew 28.18. The Jesus who speaks the Sermon on the Mount to us is the same Jesus to whose lordship every knee will one day bow and every tongue confess, Philippians 2. Verses 9 and 10. One day coming, friends, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of the Jesus who speaks to us the Sermon on the Mount. Revelation 11:15, And he will reign forever and ever. So friends, because of the sheer divine authority of the one who preaches the Sermon on the Mount, we best listen intently and we best listen prayerfully to his sermon and seek to live out what he lays out in the empowerment that he gives. We are, after all, his creatures. Amen? And I mentioned also the integrity of the one who preaches the Sermon on the Mount as a further reason to listen hard and seek to obey. Now the point here is that Jesus lives out and Jesus embodies the teaching that he gives in his sermon. Examples? Matthew 5, 7. Jesus says, he teaches, blessed are the merciful. Well, in Matthew 20, verse 33, as just one example, out of his mercy, Jesus heals two blind men. Or in Matthew 5, 10, Jesus will talk about being persecuted for righteousness' sake. Persecuted for righteousness' sake. Well, who is it that ends up persecuted to death, though innocent, for God's righteous purpose? Jesus does. In his integrity, Jesus himself practices what he preaches in his sermon, which invites us and encourages us, doesn't it, to listen even harder and follow him here. Well, friends, all of what we've just said is the intro to the sermon series. <laughs> uh, there's still a little bit more intro to go, but this is the intro to the sermon series and to the Sermon on the Mount itself. As we move closer now toward approaching the text of Scripture itself, I want to make just a few observations about the position or the placement in Matthew's Gospel of the Sermon on the Mount. The sermon, again, is found in Matthew 5 through 7, which means, obviously, that Matthew has material that, become, that comes before the sermon, Matthew 1 through 4, and he also has material that follows the sermon, Matthew 8 through Matthew 28. Now, Daniel Doriani is a commentator who has observed 
that the Sermon on the Mount is sandwiched between two accounts of Jesus healing people. So right before the sermon starts, we have Matthew 4, verses 23 through 25, which are verses that record Jesus healing all manner of diseases in Galilee. And then right after the sermon ends, we have Matthew 8 and we have Matthew 9, where Jesus heals another variety of people who have a variety of afflictions. So that these accounts of healing on either end of the sermon act like bookends to the sermon itself. The point being that the Sermon on the Mount, which gives us many demands from Jesus, is surrounded by accounts of the gifts that Jesus brings, gifts of healing. And I think there may be a message there that the, the, the demands of Jesus are going to be accompanied, surrounded by the gifts of Jesus. Amen? When Jesus calls us to be on task for him, he accompanies that call with the gift of his grace. And sure enough, at the end of Matthew's gospel, we have Jesus saying this to us. He says, I am with you. How often is he with us? Always. <laughs> it's with us right now. I am with you always to the end of the age. We need to understand that it's only in relationship with the risen Jesus that we will ever be able to start obeying what Jesus demands in his sermon. Jesus gives grace and he gives power to enable us to follow and to obey. Well, a further thing to notice about the context that surrounds the Sermon on the Mount is the importance of Matthew 4, verses 12 through 17. If you have a Bible, turn there. Matthew 4, verses 12 through 17. Those particular verses, toward the end of Matthew 4 seem to function as something of an introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. In those verses, what happens is that Jesus crosses over to Galilee of the Gentiles in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. And in that situation, Matthew quotes Isaiah, doesn't he? He says, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. The idea is that with the presence of Jesus there in Galilee, the dawning light that Isaiah had prophesied, which for him was a symbol of God's presence, this presence, this light, had arrived in the person of Jesus Christ. With the arrival of Jesus in Galilee, God's presence has come amongst the Gentiles. And right after Matthew gives us that quote from Isaiah, Matthew records Jesus preaching, Jesus saying, Repent! That is, do a 180 degree turn from your position in life right now, walk away 
from your previous direction and walk toward me, says Jesus. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I think that that passage, being as close as it is to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, really serves as an introduction to the sermon. The idea is that the delivering presence of God that Isaiah had prophesied had now arrived in the person of Jesus, and Jesus was calling people to turn, to repent. And the Sermon on the Mount can be taken as an expansion that lasts for three whole chapters on what it means, what it looks like to repent, to turn from self and sin to God, and what it means to be free and flourishing as a human being. Don't you want that? Now, as a lead-in to the first two verses of Matthew 5, which is as far as we're going to get today, I need to just quickly review one of the main ideas that Matthew is going for in Matthew 1 through 4. Many of you have heard me give an outline of this in times past. Matthew is at pains. He's at pains in the first four chapters of his gospel to draw parallels between Jesus and Moses. Very quickly, near the start of the book of Exodus, where we have the story of Moses, Pharaoh was trying to kill every male infant in Egypt. Near the start of the Gospel of Matthew, Herod is trying to kill every male infant in the region of Bethlehem. In Exodus 2.15, Moses has to flee to Midian because Pharaoh is trying to kill him. In Matthew 2, verses 13 to 15, Joseph and Mary have to flee with the baby Jesus to Egypt because Herod is trying to kill Jesus. In Exodus 4.19, God tells Moses to return to Egypt because, quote, all the men who were seeking your life are dead. Exodus 4.19. In Matthew 2, verse 20, God's angel tells Joseph to take Jesus back to Israel because, quote, those who sought the child's life are dead. Jesus looks a lot like the new Moses. In Exodus 14, Moses and Israel cross the death waters of the Red Sea toward new life in Canaan. In Matthew 3, Jesus submits himself to the death waters of baptism and rises up out of those waters to have the Spirit descend on him. In the Exodus story, Moses and Israel end up in the wilderness, don't they? Where they are tempted and where they fail in those temptations. In Matthew 4, Jesus ends up in the wilderness where he is tempted but succeeds in overcoming the temptations. Clearly, friends, 
Matthew, in the first four chapters of his gospel, is at pains to present Jesus as the new Moses. And for the Jewish person in Matthew's day who read Matthew's gospel, Moses was not, we need to understand, he was not simply and merely the lawgiver who had received the Ten Commandments. He was that, but he was so much more than that. Moses, to the Jew in in Jesus' day, was Israel's redeemer. He was Israel's deliverer. He was the savior figure who had led the Hebrew people out of Egypt. So that when Matthew presents Jesus as the new Moses, he is presenting Jesus as the new Deliverer, as the new Savior, the one sent from God to lead people in the new exodus that Isaiah had prophesied. The name Jesus, or Yeshua, or Joshua, means Yahweh saves. And in Matthew 121, we have the statement, you are to name him Jesus. Why? Because he will save people, not from the Romans, from their sins. A good way to read the Sermon on the Mount is to see it as the words of the new deliverer. The new Moses, on task in his new exodus freeing us from the shackles and the dirt of our sins. As Glenn Stassen puts it in the Sermon on the Mount, and I love this, he says, God comes to deliver us in the sermon from our vicious cycles of anger and violence, unfaithfulness and adultery, manipulation and deceit, materialism and greed, and our double-mindedness to deliver us from our separation from God. The new and better Moses has come, friends, and his name is Jesus. Would you please stand, as you are able, for the reading of the first two verses. We're going to go through these real quick. The first two verses of the section in our Bible is called the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 Verses 1 and 2, Alice read them for us earlier, but I want to read them again. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and that's as far as we'll get today. Thank you. You may be seated. The suspense is killing you, right? Matthew 1 to 4, we just said, presented Jesus clearly as the new Moses. Matthew 5 1 continues the trend. The Greek of Matthew 5 1, that has Jesus going up the mountain, is exactly the same as the Greek version of Exodus 19 3 that the apostles were reading as they wrote the New Testament. Exodus 19.3 has the climactic moment after the exodus from Egypt where Moses had gone up the mountain there to receive the law from God. Jesus is the new Moses ascending up 
the mountain. But the difference is this. Moses had gone up Mount Sinai into the presence of God. Moses listened to God, and then Moses came down the mountain to deliver the word of God to the people. In the case of Jesus Christ, he goes up the mountain as God in the flesh. In the Sermon on the Mount, God speaks to us on the mountain through Jesus. Jesus is the word of God, John 1, in a way that Moses never was. So much stuff happens on mountains, doesn't it, in the Bible? Stop and think about it. Not only the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, but also, according to Ezekiel 28, interesting fact, the Garden of Eden was located on a mountain. And it had been on Mount Moriah, where Abraham had experienced God's amazing presence and saving grace in the moment when Abraham was prepared to sacrifice Isaac. It was on Mount Ebal that Joshua had renewed the covenant in Joshua 8. And it was on Mount Carmel where Elijah had his famous showdown with the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18. David set up the Ark of the Covenant at Mount Zion. And Solomon would later build the temple of the Lord on Mount Zion. There was a long history in Israel of crucial redemptive events happening on mountains. A long history of the presence of God residing on mountains. Jesus, as his sermon begins, goes up the mountain. And because of the plethora of Moses' parallels already found in Matthew 1 through 4, I'm convinced that in Matthew 5, 1, we are meant to see Jesus going up the mountain as the final arbiter of God's law. To quote Jonathan Pennington again, the final arbiter of God's law. That's who Jesus is. Matthew 5, 1 says that once Jesus was up on the mountain, he did what? He sat down. The Jewish teachers of Jesus' day, the scribes and the Pharisees, sat in the seat of Moses, according to Jesus in Matthew 23.2. Jesus in Matthew 5.1 sits down as the new Moses, who is in fact far better than Moses because Jesus is in fact God with us. Emmanuel, which we learned already in Matthew 1.23 if we've been reading Matthew. Matthew 5.1 tells us that after Jesus sat down on the mountain, what happened? His disciples came to him. Okay, so then according to this verse, the disciples of Jesus are the audience of the Sermon on the Mount. It seems clear from this verse that this sermon that Jesus preaches is directed to disciples, to people who are already following him, right? Not so fast. (laughs) At the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, we get verse 28 of chapter 7, which says that when Jesus finished preaching, who was astonished at his teaching? The crowds. Hmm. The crowds were astonished at his teaching. So the crowds 
had been listening in along with the disciples. So then we ask, was the Sermon on the Mount intended for disciples or was it intended for the masses, for the crowds? And the answer is yes. If you're a believer, a disciple, you would do well to listen to Jesus here, as we've said. And if you're not a believer yet, if you're part of the crowds, you also would do well to listen to Jesus Christ here because he has all authority. And because in his sermon he's describing the path to human flourishing, which you want, and he's describing the way toward shalom, wholeness, wellness, peace. In Matthew 5.2, Matthew says that Jesus opened his mouth as he began the Sermon on the Mount, and we think here of the initial words of Psalm 78. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. That phrase in Matthew 5.2, Jesus opened his mouth and taught them, sets a tone of solemnity, a tone of gravity for what Jesus is about to say here, the first part of which we'll get to next week. So stay tuned. But to close this off this morning, I want to give you some homework. Because it's September, and homework somehow seems fitting this time of the year. Your homework is to read through the entire Sermon on the Mount at least twice this week. At least twice. You say, I don't have time. Well, prioritize. This is the authoritative Jesus. Read through the Sermon on the Mount at least twice this week and do it slowly. Prayerfully. Soberly. Reflectively. Humbly. Will you do that? As you read the Sermon on the Mount, keep in focus the divine authority and integrity of the one who is preaching it and keep his, in focus his aim in preaching the sermon, which is our flourishing and our shalom as human beings. Let's pray together. Jesus, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you, Lord. Under your feet are all things. You are the head of all rule and authority. You are the risen Jesus, alive forevermore, and you hold the keys of death and Hades. According to the Gospel of John, chapter 14, it was your great glory that Isaiah beheld in his tremendous vision in Isaiah 6. Your glory. Glory which was manifested in the fullness of times in the flesh in and around Israel of old. Lord, when we listen to you, we are hearing the voice of the Father. You said that you speak nothing on your own, but just what the Father has taught you. To whom else shall we go? You have the words of eternal 
life. And Lord, I pray that in coming weeks you would draw very near to this congregation as we listen to you in the Sermon on the Mount, that you would get under our skin redemptively. Move us, if you need to do that, from a place of complacency to fresh risk and action because of you and your kingdom. I pray that you would bear fruit, Lord, during this time that we will spend together in Matthew 5 through 7. Go with us this week. You've promised to never leave us or forsake us. Be beside us even in the most mundane things of our days. Show us your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved of the Lord, go from here with rejoicing. Let your gentleness be known to all. The Lord is always by your side. Cast worry aside. And by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God will keep you. Amen.